0: Who's really leading the new space age? It's not NASA, and it's not the nation states. It's the Silicon Valley's daredevils. Ashley Vance is a renowned investigative reporter and the man who took you inside the mind of Elon Musk. His latest book is an intimate report on the Wild West of aerospace engineering. So join us as Vance takes us on an unprecedented journey into secret space labs, private jets, and even espionage
1: any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic open the pod bay doors Hal.
0: welcome everybody to an out of this world adventure with one of my favorite authors and raconteurs ashley vance joining us from the same golden state that i'm within he's within a deep and illustrious Valley, how are you today, Ashley?
1: I'm good, man. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I
0: love your writing. You're a consummate storyteller. You get access. You have a congenial kind of uh, attitude that answers the questions, both from experts, quote unquote, like me, all the way down to the man on the street. And as I mentioned before, we hit record. I love to take my my readers, you know, my listeners, who are book aficionados. On a journey into the cover and how it came to be, because they are the heroes of this story. But you always take people on a hero's journey, and this particular adventure book has many adventures written into it. So, Ashley, please, if you would, hold up the book, explain the cover art, explain the title, and most importantly, the subtitle. And yeah, what was the inspiration for all these? And you cannot say my publisher forced me to do.
1: I will not. I will not say that. I I picked this title, When the Heavens Went on Sale, pretty explicitly. Um, You know, part of what I was trying to do in this book was, I thought, call a moment. People have been writing about commercial space for a while, obviously, but, uh, you know, there really hadn't been what I saw as like a book that really defined this moment in time. Some people who I was writing about thought the title was quite cynical and see themselves more as idealists and, uh, you know, people out to help the world. Um, and I, I clearly, I do see So I see a lot of that going on And the book is mostly optimistic, but I did think this was a moment in time when commercial space became real. I had for the image, we went back and forth on a ton of images. There's all kinds of cool stuff to play with, but. I knew I wanted a new space rocket as opposed to an old space rocket, and so we found this is a this is a rocket lab rocket launch out of New Zealand, and it was a pretty sort of like a quasi amateur photographer who had just taken this beautiful shot, and so I love it. And the, you know the misfits the misfits of geniuses part is just that that was to reflect again sort of this new moment in space when it has a bit of this like wild west um, feel to it, and and so you you know you got to mix. It, Part of the book is about it has a lot of the idealism of old space, but also this moment in time when some of the idealism goes away and, and business triumphs um, over over some of our past notions around
0: space. One of the things that reminded me of the picture reminded me of Neil deGrasse Tyson's accessory to war. I don't know if you've read that book, but I have it. Uh, that's all about how astronomers have uh, participated in the man's you know, second oldest business, which is which is warfare, of course. And so, uh, yeah, there's similar kind of art, arching image and so forth. But, uh, but I, I, love the, um, I love the book. I love the introduction, I think, that you narrated. I listened to the audiobook, I have the hard copy. And I was lucky enough to get one of my uh, undergraduates, one of the most brilliant people on Earth, Charles Cody, who took my cosmology class this year. And I shared with, you know, you get all these books as a podcaster sent to you. And, and your publicist was kind enough to send me your book. And so I listened to, I already bought the Audible copy. So I gave it to him and he generated four pages of notes. So we're going to take his question uh, (laughs) as well as some generated from the audience. But the very first, you know, kind of thing I wanted to get into is... Is Pete Warden? Oh, I think I might have met maybe at the SETI Institute. Is, do you know if he's affiliated with the SETI Institute up there?
1: You know, I don't know how closely affiliated, but it's right by NASA Ames, and and I know he's had overlap with them over the years.
0: So um, I think I met him. I've spoken there a couple times. He's a he's a great individual. Talk about his his work, his impact, um, how much of an influence this relatively unsung character is in the unfolding, you know, modern history of commercial spaceflight.
1: Yeah, I mean, Pete's one of my favorite characters, and he seems to be a lot of people's favorite character in the book. Um, I mean, like you said, a relatively unknown figure, especially outside of space circles, but what an incredible life. Um, he's, a, he's got a PhD in astrophysics, but he became a brigadier general in the Air Force. Did a lot of pretty controversial things over the years, some black ops stuff. He, he ran the Office of Disinformation for a while until the New York Times learned about it and had it shut down. For that, he was fired by Rumsfeld and George Bush, but his reward was was being granted the NASA Ames Center here in Silicon Valley and being made director of that. And so, you know, for about 30 years, Pete had been in the U.S. bureaucracy, military and in space and, and just felt like, people were doing things wrong, that rockets could be smaller and cheaper, that satellites could be smaller and cheaper, that space could be cheaper in general. And, yeah, and he really, you know, NASA is ironic that he became a NASA director because NASA sort of hated him for publicly lambasting them for being cost, you know, for all their costs and bureaucracy. So when he gets this NASA center in the early 2000s, this is his opportunity to put into action all these things he'd been dreaming about for a long time. And he, he brings in, a bunch of 20-somethings from outside of, of NASA career jobs. And he tells them, go do space differently. I'm going to hide you in some closets some of the time so so people don't find out that you're trying to make stuff cheap, uh, like a cheap lunar lander, um, you know, cheap, very cheap satellites. And he literally had to hide these projects from people. Otherwise, they would shut them down. And and so, you know, at NASA Ames, he has this, what I deem like a huge success in the furtherance of commercial space. Obviously, you had Elon in the background starting SpaceX around the same time. But I would argue after Elon, at least philosophically and, and in some of this action, Pete probably did as much to push commercial space as anyone else.
0: Yeah. You know what I love about the phrase, you know, commercial space flight, that just resonated with me throughout the book, was those two words, commercial and spaceflight, and those are very different skill sets, right? The ones that uh, kind of like me, the geeks and the nerds, look through telescopes, think about being, you know, the properties of exoplanets and life on other planets that hopefully we'll get a few minutes to chat about before the hour's up, and then the commercializers, and those are very different skill sets. I wonder, you know, shining through here was that story, and also the story, you know, kind of the difference in approach between the former Soviet Union, maybe even the pioneers of the rocket equation and so forth, and the, you know, the communist uh, approach and the capitalist approach. What are the fundamental, like, if you had to choose one, Ashley, would you choose, maybe this a four by two by two matrix, communist, capitalist, scientist, uh, businessman or woman? (laughs) Where Where is the optimal place in that matrix? Or is there not such an answer to such a question?
1: I mean, it's probably like ultimately a vague answer. I, th- You know, in the book, I borrow from this guy, Alex McDonald, who's an economist at NASA, who makes a really compelling case. I think that space took this bureaucratic, if you want to call it sort of communist turn as, as a result of, of history, you know, World War II and the Cold War and and space becoming this point of national pride. And so you had to deal with humans, mostly you had to make rockets that wouldn't fail because you'd be embarrassed for your whole country. Um, so you know, this became the stuff of government projects, billions upon billions of dollars. Things went great for a while and then it gets cemented, and you can't take a risk anymore because you don't want to be the guy that changes something and embarrasses the country and, and risks your job. And we got stuck there for a really long time. If you look at SpaceX now, to me, it's hard to argue against what a for profit business. I mean, SpaceX is running laps around the entire rest of the world at this point in terms of launches, rocket families. It's now the biggest satellite manufacturer the world has ever seen. And so if you had asked me that question 10 years ago, I feel like it'd be harder to answer to me now. But also SpaceX is sort of an anomaly. I mean, out of all the billionaires, they're the only ones that have really succeeded. But but man, they've succeeded on such a level that I don't think the world um, has really ever seen before.
0: And an allied question with that, you know, when I look at like Bezos and I look at um, Branson and and they play roles, obviously, here, but um, I don't see the same kind of passion, you know, base level passion for the science or maybe the mission or as Simon Sinek would say, the why, you know, uh, of this. Where where do you rank them, these these billionaires and, and Bigelow and, you know, all sorts of other characters? Where do you rank them in terms of their fundamental curiosity, which is a huge hallmark of my audience and myself? I mean, Bigelow
1: seemed to have this like intense interest, and I think Bezos. This appears to be like now his his life passion, but something has gone amiss because you know Blue Origin started right before SpaceX, and if you look at those two companies, I mean, they're just this is like you can't even compare their track records. You know, it, it, SpaceX is so far ahead. Um, you know, when Elon first started SpaceX, he was not as, nearly as rich as he was today, and I, I think there's something to be said for, he had to make the business actually work. It, it was not going to just be funded by billions of dollars from him in the early days. And, and I think that gave SpaceX this urgency. It comes down to that urgency, I think, cause you can be a dreamer. If you don't have some sense of immediate purpose and urgency, you end up looking like a government program because you have limitless funds and you don't have, you don't have consequences to what you're doing. Um, so that seems to be some of the recipe. Same thing for Rocket Lab, which is one of the main people, characters, companies in the book. Peter Beck, this guy in New Zealand, had to make this work. I mean, he had—he this was this was not—he was not rich. This was like a guy who didn't even go to college. He was working at a dishwasher appliance maker, and and so he had to make this work. You know, so there was no other choice. And and SpaceX and Rocket Lab are are far and away the most successful uh, commercial rocket companies. So that seems to be to me this, this driving force.
0: Yeah, when I think about Elon, you know, I'm hoping to talk to Joe Rogan soon, and I hope to you know bring up this topic with him, uh, his so-called dream, Elon's dream to, to die on Mars. And of course, you've written this wonderful book with forty thousand reviews. I mean, that's the square of the number of reviews of all of my books. It's just, basically, uh, if you have more than a thousand reviews, Ashley, you're you're basically set for life. So you you've got forty lifetimes worth just from this one book, and now your new newest wonderful book, When the Heavens Went on Sale. But if I could ask Elon one question, it would be: Which of your kids are you not going to take with you? Which of your kids are going to attend your remote funeral here on Earth when you die? As you know, he's claimed he wants to die on Mars. I hope it's not on impact, as Martin Reese would say. Uh, but tell me, you know, what you know him probably better than any you know average or citizen. Obviously, such unprecedented access. What is it? mean to say you want to die on mars to a father of 10 kids you know i've got you know less than less than that but uh, fewer than that not by much but um, <laughs> but tell me what does that mean who is he going to leave behind it was just a practical question
1: you know i mean elon's always he's always said that line i never know fully how seriously he takes it i've been sort of surprised that as spacex has gotten so much better with taking humans um into orbit on some of these missions you know, like, it's at the point now where Elon could definitely take one of those rides without, uh, like, you know, not, not a crazy amount of risk, really. Um, and and he's chosen not to. I mean, Elon's always positioned that as, like, it's the same as going to conquer the new world. And the people who go on those first journeys are in for a rough, rough time of it. And you're you're sort of sacrificing your life for this, this greater good. When I talked to him, because he, he had that quote in my book, I mean... I don't think he pictures this. What is he now? He's about like fifty-two or something like that. Um, I don't think he pictures this until he's pretty ripe. <laughs> I think it's a bit of like a, a last last act, you know, because because Elon tends to view himself as pretty essential to his companies. I get I get the deeper point of your question, but I sometimes I think it's um, I think it's more philosophical than real at, at this point for him.
0: Yeah, I mean, the deeper thing, which he may have talked about with you as well, is extending consciousness in the in the solar system. But, you know, I always point out there's a lot of consciousness, there's a lot of life here on Earth. And as they say, we know the surface of Mars better than the surface of the ocean floor. You know, so we're, we're going to make an impact. But um, I don't want to make this all about Elon, but I'll ask one more question and beg your forbearance and your characteristic way of indulging me. Uh, it would be if indeed that that is a goal, you know, to kind of do this, then what you know, who's advising him or who's, who's listening to, like, who does he listen to anybody? I mean, it seems like he does things so, you know, whimsically changing the name of Twitter, which had global brand recognition to X, which has no recognition could be a porn site. You know, who knows? My wife is concerned about this eight ninety nine every month. I'm getting X.com and double X.com. She doesn't know what that one's. For. Uh, um, but also he doesn't seem to, he seems to listen, you know, to kind of the, the, the average person, which is which is commendable, like someone complains about some feature missing on Twitter, or some astronomers claim that these SpaceX satellite Starlinks are you know polluting the the sky, and he's, he seems to take some interest and, and effort in that. But uh, but in terms of like the big picture, it doesn't seem like he listens to anyone, which is you know could be a good trait. Uh, I've heard him say he doesn't give charity; he thinks it's all a scam. What what do you make of of you know his his so called you know kitchen cabinet? Are, are there people that are you know, that he'll listen. I know you guys had an infamous Twitter space. I I know you guys were close and maybe are. I'm not not implying that you're not, but, but yeah, it seems like when you get to a certain level, if you don't listen to anybody, you're kind of setting yourself up for, for really Greek tragic uh, downfall. And I wish him the greatest of success, obviously, but
1: I mean, I think he's always been pretty, um, self-confident and, and chasing what he believes in without too much you know, um, advice taking from the side, but, but I, my, you know, what I see happening is he's taking even less, um, sort of advice than ever. And, and I think as he's gotten wealthier and, you know, when you reach this point where you're the richest person in the world, the reality of life kind of fades away and you get into this very strange bubble and, He was never the easiest person to give critical um, feedback to. That was sort of like a a life and death proposition for the rank and file employees at the company. Um, There are people close to him who, you know, I've texted him when he was doing crazy things on Twitter. Like, you know, that's just too far. Don't do that. I remember when he switched off, he was threatening to switch off Starlink in Ukraine. I was texting him that weekend and then like an hour later, he, you know, he's like, okay, we'll leave it, leave it on again. So, I mean, he, he will change his mind if enough people go at it, but I think, I think he's pretty much going to do what he's going to do, man. I mean, that is, that's Elon's modus operandi and he believes, you know, he believes some of these things on like a religious level. I mean, the whole, you know, his life's goal really for the last 20, 25 years has been to set up this human colony on Mars. And he sees that as like an existential risk and sort of the highest um, priority somebody could chase after. And, and he absolutely believes that in his heart. Like none of this has anything to do with making money or, or anything like that.
0: I mean, you'd think that he would want to listen to experts there, you know, if, if not on, you know, how to, how to suppress, you know, information on, on, from the government or something. You know, listening to astronomers, people that study exobiology, you know, he started a physics degree. I don't know if he finished it at UPenn. He's very interested in in this notion. But, you know, has anyone ever told him that if you took like all the biomass on the earth that existed from 4.3 billion years ago uh, up until today, and you just made a shell of it and you covered the earth, it would would cover less than four millimeters. And that, you know, imagine like buttering Mars with, with slathering it with four millimeters of biomass. Even if you did that, the next day that would all be dead, you know, so it's even if you start with a four billion head, year head start, totally lifeless, totally pointless. And in fact, as I mentioned, help, uh, hopefully will mention when I go to, to speak with Joe Rogan, the, you know, the fact that we get these meteorites, this is a meteorite that uh, I give away to people in my audience that are have dot edu email addresses. You can get that at brianking.com edu because I love communicating to college kids and, and postdocs and professors. This came from, you know, a, a supernova that blew up in our galaxy five billion years ago, perhaps. But I have a chunk of Martian meteorite that I'm getting Joe Rogan for his birthday. And, you know, it's considerably more expensive. Uh, uh, and yet that proves that materials come from Mars to the Earth and likewise go from Earth to Mars. And so there's constant what's called panspermia, one of those words that sounds dirty, but it's not. And it's going back and forth for billions of years. And yet there's zero probability of life or zero evidence of life on Mars, possibly anywhere else. So this dream of like extending it there it might be better suited to the buzzword of the day, artificial intelligence, you know, creating a monolith, you know, as I'll ask you about later. It seems like he gets in his mind. He wants to do something. He's just going to do it. He has the resources of, of more than the top, you know, the bottom, you know, 9, uh, 190 countries on earth. So can he just do anything? I, anyway, I feel like it could set him up. I don't want to keep talking about him, but but I do want to talk about an allied problem which is uh, the fact that these Starlink satellites and these other satellites which talk about in the book are potentially a problem uh, for optical astronomers, like my colleagues. I dabble in optical astronomy. I, I can know my way around a telescope or two, Ashley, don't worry. But the other thing is microwave astronomy. So we studied the origin of the universe, which revealed itself in 1965 at the beginning of the space race at Bell Labs. Serendipitously, astronomers were looking to see if they could spot the very first commercial satellite, Echostar. And they found that there was this irreducible background hiss of radiation, they couldn't get rid of it. That turned out to be the famous cosmic microwave background radiation, which butters my bread. Uh, that's how I make my living. I study it. Now, you can darken a satellite such that it's not visible to an optical telescope like this. But as long as it's above zero degrees Kelvin, as every object in low earth urban is, as you know, it's actually close to 300 Kelvin. It's going to just be swamping our signals, plus they're broadcasting in the very signal bands that we, um, that we enjoy. I want to ask you two questions. To what extent does the commercial space industry give a you-know-what about such concerns for our precious few windows into the cosmos? And two, an allied question is, what are we going to do with all the jump? You know, when those satellites become this junk of meteorite, my Starlink's already out of date. So first question is, do they care, the commercializers? I know Elon sort of has a team dedicated to it, but the other ones that you write about, Rocket Lab, Final Lab, all these other companies, do they care?
1: I'll never forget. It was like when the first SpaceX rocket took the first batch of Starlink satellites up, all of a sudden the astronomers were like, hey, this this is this is going to hurt, you know, our, our field. I couldn't believe, I mean, I'd been following this as a semi-casual observer for years. It was like, this this was not like a, a secret, you know, I mean, this was on a, a launch manifest for a really long time. I found it to be a very strange time to begin complaining um, about this and trying to sound the alarm because... I would argue whether they whether these companies care or not this this ship has has sailed I mean just in the last you know from 1960 to 2020 we had about 2500 satellites in low earth, or low earth orbit that number went up I don't know you know about like 10 to 30 satellites per year this was not this was not like a Ast- exponential curve. In the last three years, it is an exponential curve. We've we've gone from twenty five hundred to ten thousand. We're going to go to a hundred thousand, maybe two hundred thousand. So this is part of the reason I wrote the book. Was like, I mean, these are wonderful questions, but but um, I think that these days are over. I would argue, you know, astronomers and scientists, if they're going to find sort of the the blessing in all this is that the price to get a scientific instrument into space and to put it. Further into space is going to be lower, so much lower than ever before, that maybe there's like sort of a boon um, to science that can be done in the, that you have much better access than you had before. But um, yeah, sorry, I just don't even think it matters if these companies care or not because there's so many of them and this is going to happen.
0: But what about the space junk problem? I mean, this is getting more and more. Yeah, you know, space is becoming not only a battlefield, but it's a junkyard. Do what are the what are the you know deactivation protocols and and so forth that are in place? Have they, have they thought about that? Any of the companies? Not just yeah. I the mean, they,
1: they've thought about it, but but you could argue almost barely. You know, I mean, I mean, this this is like uh, commercial space is moving so much faster all of a sudden than the regulatory bodies that we're used to dealing with this. And and there's you know the the as far as I'm concerned, the company with like the best tools for monitoring. Debris is Leo Labs. And this is like a startup of of about 50 people. Their technology is fantastic. They have their own antennas that came out of SRI and Silicon Valley. But, you know, people should know <laughs> that a lot of this hinges on, on like a, you know, eight-year-old company. Um, New Zealand is like the only country that I know of that has pretty serious um, legislation around you're responsible for what you put up there and how it deorbits and there's real consequences to pay. Otherwise, you know, it's pretty much the wild West. Once you get a satellite into orbit, um, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of consequence as to what happens. I think all these companies will have to be incented to make this work or these billions of dollars in investment, you know, are, are worthless. And, and the question is, you know, can mankind for the first time ever, Get to some new territory turn it into a capitalist exercise and not screw it all up um that that's sort of the that's the gamble
0: yeah it's it's good that you added in the you know commercialized because we actually the the world was pretty successful in preventing that from happening in antarctica where i've been twice um i don't know if you've had a chance to visit there but uh it's it's even more boring than space. No, it's it's not. Uh, <laughs> uh, there are parts of it that are quite uh, that are quite you know and, and, and lovely, but but most of it's like this flat white sheet of ice that just goes on seven hundred nautical miles in all directions. But luckily, I only go there for a couple of weeks, and you guys pay for it. You're taxpayers out there. Uh, but uh, they established in 1956 a treaty that um, only allowed utilization of the continental shelf, if you will, if the whole continent for non-commercial, non-militaristic purposes, and it seems like they thought, you know, that was in 1956, so the commercial space industry had 75, you know, plus years to figure this out or look to that as a model. Obviously, they want to use it commercially, although you could get a lot of minerals, resources, and just, you know, sell real estate in Antarctica, it's one-seventh of the continental mass of the Earth, right, and plus it has all this free water, you know, uh, pure water. Anyway, um, as that were these things that thought about by government regulators? I mean, make it a condition that you must have a safe way to deorbit it, or was it like, well, China's not going to think about that. India's not, you know, they're just going to deorbit and burn up whenever they want, or blow them up on purpose for military testing. Was there no foresight gleaned from our experience in Antarctica, Ashley?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's kind of different because space had such obvious military applications and then commercial applications that I, I don't think would be apples to apples, maybe with Antarctica. Um, and then, you know, I really think what happened was things were progressing Okay, and I, sh- I want to reiterate, my book is generally, I'm excited about all this stuff and optimistic. you know this is this is sort of like the this is the the down case for a lot of this, but it's hard to stress to people who we, we had tried commercial space for 20, 25, 30 years, and, and it had largely been a failure. And so I don't think, I don't think a lot of this felt real to regulators. Um, and it's only within the span of about five years where SpaceX really hit its stride. Some of these other startups appeared. All of a sudden, we're on this exponential curve with the satellites that that these questions are real. You know, if you go back even like three years ago, the major rocket players were lucky to do one a month. SpaceX is now running almost one every two days. Rocket Lab's starting to get to like one a week. Like this is a massive, very quick change. So you used to have a lot of time to contemplate these things and to try to slow things down. and And that's over now because it is sort of like a land grab. Whoever gets there first really has an advantage. And so, you know, I just think this is moving so much faster than regulators had any idea was coming.
0: So I want to turn to uh, some of my audience questions, but I want to um, start with, uh, for my my wonderful student, uh, uh, who sent me the questions, it's just so lovely, read and enjoyed the book. I'm going to make him post it as a review, one of your 50,000 reviews, Charles Thank you so much. So he was really enthralled by, you know, kind of, you know the the ability for these nerdy egghead scientists i don't know if you ever heard this you know uh, ashley but how do you know that a scientist is outgoing i don't know he looks at your shoes when he talks to you <laughs> <laughs> goes for engineers too. so the ability it seems like of these characters that you profile and and some of them came up come out so you know it's just so wonderfully you know portrayed and their characters um even though you know people like chris camper or others, Peter Beck especially, they're not only good at the technical side of delivery of commercials, but they're good at the people management skills. Can you say anything about the commonalities in the four companies that you profile? Is there, uh, Charles wants to know, and I do too, is there a way to like isolate their ability to spot talent? And is there a way that my audience, you know, many of whom are you know, PhDs and, and engineers or bachelor's engineers, that they can take lessons from this book and, and what to enable success in their own businesses? i mean
1: it's an interesting observation because i don't know if i feel exactly the same way i felt that one of my biggest revelations from doing this book you know there were a number of these companies where i was able to be there basically from day one to follow their journey which i'd never been able to do before is to like see a company from its start to to its first major product and You know, I've been reporting on business for decades now, and I was maybe this is like naive on my part, but I was actually surprised at the influence a CEO has over the company and, and really like how the company begins to sort of embody a lot of their personality. And so I was kind of surprised that each company had a very different flavor to me. Um, based on who was running it and and i tried to write the book where essentially breaks into four different sections where each one had a bit of uh that same flavor like like some is the hero's journey some's a comedy some's a tragedy and it, it, it sort of hinges a lot on on the driving force behind the company if there's a unifying factor i mean it's not a great i don't think it's any genius insight it's just it's perseverance you know and and this stuff is hard i mean that's what i tried to especially in the astra section of the book i wanted to make that like a bit of a tome to engineering and even though space has this sort of sexy aura to it that you know in the end it comes down to like grunt work and and suffering through some pretty dark times and 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 sort of just boring times sometimes waiting for a rocket to launch and the people who've been the most successful, I really think of like Elon and Peter Beck um, faced tremendous odds and just would not be stopped from, from their dreams. I mean, that's really the, the sort of secret to their success. And, and they, you know, Peter is quite unique. Like I would say Elon's probably better at business, a little less technical and Peter's more technical and, and had never really had to run a business before but was able, and made mistakes, like huge mistakes. I mean, he gave away 50% of his company at the beginning and, and managed to get it back for $100,000. But, you know, learned the business stuff away. So it, it's sort of like adapting um, on the fly. But it, ultimately, perseverance and persistence, I think, win.
0: <laughs> yeah, it reminded me again, I'm kind of an Antarctic nerd, so I see a lot of stuff through that lens. And Reportedly, there was a, there was a, a job ad uh, that Shackleton's Voyage had, Way back when, and it reminded me of some of the some of the themes of of when the heavens went on sale. It says, uh, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition and invent of success. Uh, who knows? It could be apocryphal, but I, I thought it was uh, kind of cute. A lot of these people, yeah, depend on a lot of luck. It's it's hard for a scientist or an engineer, as you know, to depend on luck. Uh, One of the companies, you know, that does. Well, go ahead. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Well, you know, one of the most interesting things to me reporting this book was that, like, if you take Rocket Lab, I mean, this is a company in New Zealand that has no aerospace experience. Peter didn't go to college. The people from the United States were really not allowed to work there on the rocket because of government regulations. So you had a bunch of 20-somethings from Australia New Zealand, a few Europeans. They were quite successful. I mean, the first rocket really... It was only safety regulators that kind of prematurely blew it up. Otherwise, they would have launched successfully uh, uh, on their first mission, which almost really has like never happened, I think. And, you know, in the U.S., we've had about, I don't know, depends where you draw the line, but say 10, 12 rocket startups who have really struggled. And these are... Companies that can borrow from Boeing and and Lockheed and from SpaceX and and all this talent. It was interesting to me that it's not just, you know, like at Astra, they brought in a whole SpaceX team. Virgin Orbit brought in like the whole huge chunk of the Falcon 1 team and went years and years without being able to launch. So there is some sort of like magic that Even without like this, this knowledge that that these teams come together to figure this out at at somewhere like SpaceX or rocket lab, that is, is there is something unique there. I'm not even sure I've been able to put my finger on it.
0: Yeah. And certainly it's not only large deep pockets that can do. And I mean, for one thing, the U S space program is, you know, has infinite budget and uh, they weren't able to really commercialize things, even like the space shuttle which was supposed to launch once a week you know. when I was a kid and ended up you know, 120 launches over 25 years or something like that with uh, two notable tragic events, which I want to get to in just a bit. But um, in the time we, we have left, I want to bring up a kind of a thought and get your reaction from one of your neighbors up there, Andy Weir, who is a past guest on the podcast and a good friend. And actually, I can't say he's an alumnus of UC San Diego because he never graduated, but uh, he's a good friend uh, of our campus. And, and we love him. And his book Artemis, which I don't know if you've read, he really makes the case that the only case for tourism or for space, you know, commercialization besides, you know, satellites, communication, military stuff, you know, for people being in space is tourism. And that's the big theme of the book, Artemis. I'm not, you know, spoiling it, obviously. Uh what do you make about that? Tourism, you know, humans in space, and then, you know, how, how would they react to a challenger or a Columbia type event? How would these companies react to such a thing?
1: Well, for people who don't know, it's like, I I do not get into Mars. I don't get into the moon. I don't get into tourism. To me, the business case is very obviously right now, all the activity, major activity is low earth orbit and filling it full of satellites. I think we are building quite clearly the next layer of our technological infrastructure in low earth orbit. I just see this as like the next step in human progression like how viable space tourism becomes if you i mean we have a long way to go between what blue origin and virgin galactic are doing now and a viable space tourism business like a really long way i mean it's like really yeah. tech space. i mean it's it's suborbital but for it's a lot of you know space, like, obviously it's orbital and these business models are not great the experience is not great spacex Yes, you could take like a week long journey, that would be awesome. That's still going to cost you many tens of millions of dollars to do today. Um, you know, I perhaps things change over time. I don't know. I, I get a little less excited about spacerism, I get more excited about what you brought up earlier, which I think is inevitable, which is, is, you know, either we all die on this planet in a few billion years or we push our intelligence out into the universe. And, and to me, I mean, that is the that's the bigger quest here and, and what what kind of interests me. You, people always ask like why why are we even pursuing any of this stuff? I mean, otherwise I think there's <laughs> you, you, it gets hard to figure out what the point of any of this is if we're not pushing off this planet one day.
0: Well, one company that's not mentioned is sort of conspicuous to me, and I want to run my business proposition by you, and then I'll close it, open it up to, you know, Series B funding, is Apple. And the reason I bring them up, uh, lo- uh, unfortunately, last week, there's been tremendous tragedy in Lahaina, Maui, with, um, you know, the whole town, which I love, and, uh, um, you, know, you know, the visit of many types, Uh is basically burned up, and yeah, it's, it's quite tragic, and there was a lot of, you know, satellite imagery and, and forecasting and stuff. But actually, Apple, you know, released this new feature where they can do SOS communications with satellites directly. Um, and I've reportedly it saved at least one family of six or seven people's lives. And now they're saying even more people. I want to kind of take you through an idea that I had and and prompted by something Elon said again. You know, he's like Voldemort, you know, we can't avoid it, but uh, we shouldn't dwell on him too much. But, you know, kind of putting satellites in orbit and also combining Apple with a handset you know, making the possibility, not just for us, I don't want to say just, but not only for rescuing human beings and providing, you know, the greatest service one could ask for, but for like banking and putting, you know, like cryptocurrency servers in space. They could have an independent network. And I think Apple's using old Iridium satellites or or something like that. um, But, uh, or MRSAT. But, uh, but the question I have is, you know, is, is are people thinking about a truly decentralized network Instant, you know, sending a beaming at the speed of light more or less to Africa from San Diego, for example, sending cryptocurrency and, you know, Elon would probably have it be Dogecoin or or whatever he calls it. So, yeah, what are the opportunities there? So getting like layer two companies, uh, once the picks and shovels are there, what can be done, you know, to enable things like global banking at the speed of light that's... uh, Permissionless and uh, decentralized.
1: This is what people don't really realize yet. I think we're at like 1996 internet, consumer internet. I think all these satellites, all these new, cheaper rockets going up more often. This is just laying fiber optic cables, building data centers all around the planet. We have like not even, you know. The business cases around the current stuff some of them are okay most of them seem terrible to me what has to come next for this to actually work is a whole flood of new ideas um there were rumors like i was covering a chasing a story five six years ago that apple you know when starlink was kind of like just starting up it looked there were a lot of rumors that apple was looking to build something similar to starlink and, and yes i completely saw this as okay you have all these iphones now you could just be your own global telco and have your own private network you know apple's so big on security and privacy what better way to offer this to your consumers than to have this this kind of global private network that works anywhere all the time and i don't think people have yet Understood, like Starlink is not, this is not just about connecting your farmhouse to the internet or even like the 3.5 billion people who can't get fiber today. Starlink and all of its competitors, this is, this is, you know w- washing the world coding the world in an always on high speed internet connection is going to like change things in such a dramatic fashion that we can't even sort of fathom yet i mean i really think this is like the next step in the internet and there's going to be so many businesses that come out of this um and you know like data centers in space these private networks i i, I could totally see many companies wanting to run their own private network through their own satellites
0: yeah that's uh <clears throat> just just you know, kind of a phenomenal opportunity. Like, yeah, I can't really put my mind on exactly what's going to come up next, but, uh but yeah, I mean, if you have any uh, stock tips confidential, let me know, Ashley. Please. Whoever. <laughs> <laughs>
1: like there's going to be young kids who figure this out. There were a lot of kids who got you who know, were not interested in space for a long time because it got sort of boring on the commercial end. Now there's a lot of twenty somethings who are getting into this, and they're going to think. Up, all kinds of stuff
0: so last question of mine before we pivot to some audience questions including a character in the book who i solicited the question from today and it's not elon to disappoint my my listeners hope to get him on the podcast someday because he's never talked to a real physicist astronomer as far as i can tell on a podcast and uh, I would enjoy it is a work that you did. It was actually it came out last year, but it's about brain computer interface. And this is in Bloomberg. And I should mention that you write a wonderful, uh, you know, semi regular. I don't know how, how regular it is, but um, talk about your interest in these uh, in these devices. I mean, the most commonly you know known one is, of course, Neuralink, but there are many others. So talk about this syn- Synchron's, uh, you know, the device that you wrote about last year. What's your interest there? Is this your next book? Ashley, give us the straight scoop.
1: Man, you're you doing your research. I don't like that. <laughs> this, this is. Just, oh, I love, I, I love, you love your work. I love
0: your writing, and uh, it really. No, uh, I, I,
1: I appreciate. It. I think this is this is something I'm pursuing. It's hard to like figure out the timing on this, but um, it's an incredible time. Say sort of a similar thing I mean, you have this technology that was quite academic for the last 25 30 years um, there's a thing called a Utah array which is this kind of crude device we've been putting into people's heads to let them think and um, move move stuff again um, and then all of a sudden, you know same thing a bunch of venture capital money poured into this um, it's turned into a commercial exercise and and the technology has advanced at this incredibly rapid, clip um so i just got back from switzerland there's a company called onward i saw two paralyzed people walk again through a spinal implant and those spinal implants are now being combined with brain implants it's like one of the most incredible it's like hard to put into words um oh, it's, it's so moving yeah like it's so moving and has changed their lives you know people we've we've already gotten so hung up on like the matrix i'm going to download kung fu or spanish like what people sh- should know i my gut is telling me, you know, in the next 10 years, people with ALS, Parkinson's, if you've had a stroke, if you've been paralyzed, I mean, your life is going to get much, much better, I think, um, without over-promising to people. But yeah, so this is a fascinating field. Neuralink is like the best-funded most ambitious, highest risk of, of all them and is really trying to be like the general purpose machine. You know, some people are focused just on the spine or just on the brain. Neuralink kind of wants to do it all. I have a big story coming out on Neuralink. I've been going there for about three years. Um, I'm not sure exactly when it'll come out, but in the next like month or two. And so, yes, no, this is a, I think it's a fascinating area. I think it's it's to me like maybe the most exciting tech area. If, if Neuralink is successful, you may remember elon musk like for that company first and foremost before any of the others
0: yeah i agree this has uh, such revolutionary benefit right now right here on earth with uh, people that are otherwise you know kind of uh uh, uh completely disabled or you know mar- m- uh, majority disabled so to me that's a very special mission that he has and of course you know uh, all these companies i hope that they all succeed i mean it's, it's not like a a finite pie where you know, some person solve it. It's going to be a, a monopoly on, you know, curing uh, paralysis. So it's idiotic, right? Okay, so I uh, solicited questions online. Just reminded my audience: you can always uh, send me questions from my audience. I try to do it a little bit more in advance than I did today, but nevertheless, on Twitter, Dr. Brian Keating, or Instagram, Theo Brian Keating, or YouTube, Dr. Brian Keating, with this interview will show up. And if you're listening to it, you should check out uh, all those venues and leave me questions for my esteemed guests that come on. So. I asked uh, a friend of mine who is mentioned in the book and his name is Creon uh, Levitt. He said, uh, he has a question for you. Can you give your analysis of the importance of both Pete Warden and Robert Zubrin on the new space activities you chronicle in your book, including but not limited to their effects on SpaceX and NASA.
1: Clearly, Robert had this. He had, he seemed to have some influence on Elon and this whole Mars quest before SpaceX really formally started. And I think probably probably like helped cement some of these ideas in Elon's head. And so maybe he gets a ton of credit to actually like actualizing SpaceX and making Elon chase that dream. I tend to find Robert's stuff a little more, you know, I know he's, he does his research, he's, he's very bright. It's just a little more pie in the sky to me. I think Pete is, is for me a little bit more of a man of action who, um, you know, has had to run very large programs with huge budgets and whose work has had major consequences out in the world and for the stuff that I'm interested in around this commercial space, very clearly like has had a an impact. And I think I just know Pete so much better. I think the world would benefit a lot from more people like Pete Warden. I mean there's a guy who's like a Republican, maybe a libertarian at heart, a military guy, but he surrounds himself with a bunch of hippies and people who think the opposite of him and he's willing to not only hear them out but help them and support them he's a uh, relentless fighter of bureaucracy and groupthink and you know obviously I think the world if the government had more people like Pete we'd be in great shape
0: <laughs> yeah government comes off as a in a very positive light in this wonderful book on the heavens went on sale let me ask the final question from a uh, YouTube I oh, don't know from a Twitter subscriber oh, He's lit, I think is how you pronounce it hus yelt says or she said thank you him for covering planet labs. Their impact has been incredible. Highlight on the space industry. He wants to know from you, would NASA ever help fund a private crewed mission to, let's say Venus uh, flyby if the data science returns were good, or would they stick to just renting vehicles? And I know that NASA is planning a crewed, vo- did you hear about the crewed voyage to the sun, Ashley?
1: I, and what? No. <laughs> yeah.
0: They're going at night they're going at night. So we, uh, what do you think about this uh, idea of them sending a commercial or private crewed missions instead of just uh, uh, the the macho and machete, uh, I don't know, uh, astronauts that are coming on Artemis? I mean, the lines blur
1: in pretty quick, isn't it? You know, and, and there gets to be a point here very soon where, I mean, SpaceX is like, can do this stuff whatever it wants you've got startups that are putting these these private crews and missions together um i mean how long does it make sense to have like some in 12 years we're gonna send these few people off you know what i mean i mean it's looking like a little bit more um i wouldn't say like commonplace but a little bit a little bit closer to sort of day-to-day life at this point if it's something like going to venus okay maybe that has to be like a special government backed mission. But anyway, you know, I just think this line is blurring. I think I think God willing, we're at like the last stages of the government trying to fund things like SLS and and sort of getting out of the way to actually help support things. Exactly like that. That commenter is talking about um, where, you know, the best parts of NASA's smarts that are in areas spacex and blue origin and rocket lab haven't covered can come into play um so yeah you i mean we're at such a strange interesting time where there's so much commercial space activity but you still have this government especially somewhere like china it's obviously government led somewhere like russia the united states is this strange Hybrid. It's unclear to me how this plays out in terms of like who is planting the flag for some of these big missions and where you know like where business and science kind of end. Like I I assume the moon is pretty much going to be a capitalist exercise now. You know like Mars is probably like in between and beyond Mars is probably more of a a government thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you're right. Okay, we have time maybe for two. One last question from me. That's the host prerogative. But before that, can you say anything about your HBO? Uh, projects that you're working on? A space one?
1: I wish I could say more. I I can. So throughout the whole course of this book, I had a film crew with me. We make it a documentary for HBO. Um, People will be when I can announce my fellow producers. They'll be quite impressed, I think. Um, But it's going to be great. You know, it's a little more focused. In the book a smaller set of characters but uh it was amazing so we got to film like like at astra you know on day one you get to see like what a rocket company looks like to be formed from scratch like nobody's ever had a camera in some of this stuff i went to ukraine i'm the only western reporter ever to get a camera into the old icbm factories the old soviet rocket uh engine testing sites so you know i think especially for space nerds it'll be exciting and then obviously i always try to bring stuff to a mainstream audience and explain all this stuff to, to everybody
0: You're a, a remarkable storyteller and i think that's a, such a rare commodity in the age of you know chat gpt which generated all the questions <laughs> no, i'm just kidding i, I, I don't want to call my undergraduate a chat trans uh, what do they call it the transformer although he had the eye ashley i want to conclude i usually ask four questions in my patented final four questions but we only have time for one they're all inspired in one way or another by phrases of the great Arthur C. Clarke, who came up with not an insignificant amount of technology and, and ideas, at least in science fiction, in fact, related to space, including uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, but also the idea of uh, allegedly of geosynchronous satellites and things like the iPad and artificial intelligence, which I have in the back over here. But so I want to ask a question inspired by him, uh, which is his famous aphorism that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. In your career, you've encountered tremendous numbers of technologists as a reporter, Bloomberg, and many, many wonderful books and hopefully future books. What is the most magical thing, the thing that human beings should have a little bit of swagger collectively as a species about that you've ever encountered, know about, or have ever pondered about that we should justifiably think as, as close to magic as technology can provide?
1: Wow, oh, man, you snuck this one on me. I feel like I should give us some real, real deep thought. Um, has
0: you ever watched the podcast, which is okay. It's okay. <laughs> God,
1: I don't, I don't know. If, I don't know if this answer will be satisfactory to people. And maybe it's lame. But I think open source software is like such an incredible human achievement that we take for granted. I mean, it's essentially like the fabric that runs the entire modern world that we were somehow able to like, take the best parts of human nature and have people willing to collaborate and share their ideas on this level and have it become this like integral inescapable part of of our modern world i mean it's it really to me it's like the best parts of of human nature and like i think the average person has no idea about open source software at all or sort of what it entails but to me it's it's incredible it's like everything you dream of the world coming together to solve problems in a magical way
0: i thought you were gonna say the pyramids or you know but uh, <laughs> i've never i've never heard something you know that's not hardware but uh that is a wonderful answer i want to thank you so much and remind my audience you can always connect with me and my uh wonderfully just just uh, esteemed guest including ashley hopefully we'll get you for a part two maybe we'll get in person i'll give you one of these meteorites but
1: i want the uh, i want the mars one man come on my birthday my birthday is
0: next month all right cool send me your address i will send you a marshal rock i promise Ashley Vance, uh, New York Times bestseller, one of the best storytellers I've ever read. Uh, Enjoy your rest of your day. Thank you for making the time to chat with me and my audience and uh, really appreciate all of your writing, but especially your newest wonderful book, When the Heavens Went On Sale. Thank you, Ashley.
1: Thank you, Brian.